Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. This is one of those weeks during the month when I have the opportunity of interviewing someone right here in our studio. And the person I'm interviewing today is a new colleague of Beeson Divinity School, Professor Gerald R. McDermott, who is our brand new Anglican Professor of Divinity. Welcome, Jerry, to this podcast and to Beeson. Thank you, Dr. George. I am really thrilled to be here. Now, before you were here, for a number of years, 20-some-odd years, you, 26. 26 years, you taught at Roanoke College in Virginia, near Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, tell us a little bit about that pilgrimage of how, having been there so long, made such a deep contribution. Uh, now you're here. Yes, actually, it was quite a shock for me. I was cruising toward retirement. I mean, there are many wonderful things about Roanoke College. It's a Lutheran ELCA school, liberal arts college in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Southwest Virginia. And we had raised our three sons there, who are now married, of course, and have we have eight grandchildren. And I had a wonderful career there. And I was looking forward to retirement in a number of years. But all along the way, actually for the last 20 years, my wife, Jean, had said, Jerry, you know, have you ever thought of going somewhere else? And I had gotten some invitations to go here or there, but none was ever quite right. But I always said for 20 years, you know, Jean, there's only one place that I would ever really seriously consider going and that's Beeson Divinity School mm. in Birmingham. But they know me, and they haven't come calling. So <laughs> I guess they're not interested. And then this past spring, I get an email out of nowhere yeah. saying, would you be interested in coming? And, of course, I was uh, quite stunned and quite excited. Well, you know, I'll just say a word because I was uh, privileged to be on that committee. And we had actually over 40 I think 45 people who applied for the job, you were number one far and away in terms of your scholarship, your commitment to the church. You know, we have these various chairs at Beeson that must be filled by persons from different Protestant traditions, one of which is Anglican. And the fact that you're deeply rooted in that tradition, but you have a breadth and an ecumenical generosity about you that just seems to fit us. And we're delighted to have you here. Well, thank you, Timothy. I, I, I truly, and I'm not just saying, I truly feel honored. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, um, you have written about so many things, and uh, you, you teach a number of different subjects. I think that will be of interest to our listeners as they are to our students. Uh, perhaps you are best known in the world as one of the world's leading Jonathan Edwards scholars. Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Edwards and why you've pursued this with such depth. You know, they say beauty is compelling. And Jonathan Edwards, I saw when I was a graduate student looking, uh, researching civil religion in the antebellum period and seeing that everyone was, was referring to President Edwards. And I was going to write my dissertation on civil religion in the antebellum period. 
And I figured, well, you know, I've got to go back for two weeks and get control of this Edwards guy and then come back to the 19th century. Well, I went back there in the 18th century and started reading Edwards. And I got stuck. And I've been there ever since. And why? Because I was overwhelmed by this beautiful mind. Martin Marty once said that no one else in the history of American religious thought better combines genius of intellect with profundity of heart. And I have found that to be absolutely true. But I think the other thing that has kept me over the years in Edwards and and tells me that there are still oceans of Edwards to explore, and that's a word for future scholars, by the way, is that I have discovered over the years, and I've made this a theme of some of my books, that in the whole history of Christian thought, no one has made beauty so central to his or her vision of God as Jonathan Edwards. Now, there are others, of course, who are famous for their theological aesthetics, such as Augustine, mm. such as von Balthasar in the 20th century. But those historians of theological aesthetics concede that for no one else is beauty so central. And I think in this day and age of the church and culture, beauty has a particular fascination and has a particular significance. You know, the church has talked about goodness, and the church has talked about truth, but it hasn't talked as much about beauty, mm. so so centrally related to God. And so that's another reason why. And, and let me just mention a third reason. You know, a third reason that I th- that has really drawn me to Edwards over the years and has made me want to explore more and more and more and write more and more and more on Edwards is that I can't think of anyone else on the Protestant side of things who, through whose theology you better see the connections to both Roman Catholic thought and Eastern Orthodox thought. Mm-hmm. And that's a major theme of our uh, big book that we did, The Theology of Jonathan Edwards, a couple of years ago. I say our because my colleague and co-author, Michael McClymont, who's a superb historical theologian at St. Louis University. Well, you, I believe, have published or edited uh, five books with Oxford University Press uh, on Edwards. Uh, But one of the things I want to ask you about your newest book with the University of Massachusetts Press, the other Jonathan Edwards. But your interest in Edwards is not narrowly focused. I mean, you've written, we've talked about his his aesthetics, his his theme of beauty, but also, uh, you know, his love of the Bible. He was a great biblical theologian, and and you really began to write about him as a civic political thinker. So uh, he's the kind of fecund thinker whose interests do not allow for a narrow specialization, but push you in a broader way. Yes, uh, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, you know, he's one of the greats. I, I put him up there, and, and more and more historians of Christian thought are putting him up there with Augustine and with Thomas and with Luther and with Calvin as, you know, as one of the five or six greatest thinkers. Now, just as a measure of his thought, Yale University Press just recently completed its critical edition of his works, and it runs to 73 volumes, four to 800 pages each. And that's not even all of his thought. 
they haven't even captured all of it. So in terms of volume of output, uh, he's up there. Uh, but of course, as you say, the range of his interests. I mean, he was um, the premier philosopher in America until the Civil War. He wrote a profound work on the um, history of God's work of redemption mm. from before the creation to past the millennium. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was a scientist of sorts. When he was 20 or 21, he wrote this little treatise on spiders. Yeah. That was the best thing that had ever been done. And he was always fascinated by spiders. He was a philosophical theologian. His work trying to reconcile God's sovereignty with human freedom in his famous work, The Freedom of the Will, is nearly unparalleled. Now, that's not to say everyone agrees with it, yeah. but it's nearly unparalleled. I mean, it ranks up there with um, Luther's bondage of the will. His little treatise on the end for which God created the world is about the purposes of, of the creation. If God was perfectly happy in this society called the Trinity, not needing anyone or anything else, why in the world would he go to infinite pain to create, well, why in the world would he create a world that he knew would cause him infinite pain? He's got a beautiful little treatise trying to, I'm thinking he answers that question. And uh, of course, his work on revival. I mean, he, in the history of Christian thought, 2000 years, nobody comes close to him as a theologian of revival. Yeah. And that's why he's so popular in South Africa right now in the black churches. And um, theology of religious experience, his classic work, The Religious Affections, answers the question, how can we tell the difference between the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit and the presence and the work of human spirits and dark spirits? So it's really about spiritual discernment. So I rank it up there as one of the great works of spiritual discernment in the history of Christian thought. And there are many other things, of course. So, and you mentioned his public theology. That was my first book. Mm. And this recent book kind of comes back that way to not only his public theology, but his work on other questions about life outside the church. And that's the book, uh, The Other Jonathan Edwards, Selected Writings on Society, Love, and Justice, which you have uh, co-edited with Ronald Story from the University of Massachusetts Press. Yes, and we call it The Other Jonathan Edwards because... You know, Jonathan Edwards has a bad name. If anybody knows about Jonathan Edwards other than the British folk singer, who truly has that name, they are re they often, not always, thankfully, but they often are repelled. They they feel repulsion toward this this preacher, as they typically think of him, this hellfire and damnation preacher, because he preached what Harry Stout, I think, is rightly called the most famous um, sermon in American history. Mm. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And this day and in this culture, that's not a very popular subject. And so most people think that Edwards was obsessed with God's wrath. And one thing we try to show readers in this little anthology of short selections is that, A, Edwards was not obsessed with God's wrath. Instead, he was obsessed with God's beauty. B, he was intrigued with, fascinated by life outside the church. And he was very concerned about social justice and about love and human community. So this is an Edwards that just about no one knows about. Mm -hmm. And we also wrote it as an introduction 
for people who don't know anything about Edwards. So this is the book that if you do know anything about Edwards and you like Edwards, this is a book that you can give a friend who you're trying to interest in Edwards. Uh, it's got a little 20-page introduction to the life and thought of Edwards. It's got 20 selections from his uh, thinking, his private notebooks, his treatises, his sermons on love, society, and justice, and with a little introduction to each one of the uh, selections. Now, I think you'll be teaching the Jonathan Edwards elective here at Beeson in the spring. Yes. So if you're a prospective student you want to come study Jonathan Edwards with uh, Dr. Gerald McDermott, make your way to Beeson Divinity School in the spring. We'll be glad to have you. Now, uh, I want to focus our discussion for just a little bit on the fact that you're the Anglican professor of divinity, and you you are a pastor. You, you're you a minister of the gospel. So I want to ask you, I guess, a kind of a two-part question. One is, how do you think about relating church and academy? You're obviously a very fine academic scholar, historian, uh, theologian, but you're also involved in the life of the church. Um, what does that mean? Uh, and then I to say a little bit about uh, your own pastoral experience, what you bring to this. Well, I'm really impressed by Jesus' statement in Matthew 16 that he has come to build a church. He didn't just come to get souls to heaven. He came to build a church that would be a living, perpetuated presence of his body on earth. And I'm also struck by the fact that the greatest theologians— in the history of the church have been pastors in and preachers at the same time they did theology. And so I've always believed that I can't do theology with any kind of integrity unless I am pastoring in the local church and working, so to speak, in the trenches. You know, getting to know real people and letting them get to know my needs and my failures and my weaknesses and trying to share whatever I can of Christ and learn of Christ from them. And I think uh, that helps correct me from doing armchair theology or uh, ivory tower theology. It helps, I think, us theologians to keep our feet on the ground when we do theology. So the older I get, the more impressed I am with the reality of the presence of Christ in the church. Now, now of course, the church is also full of human beings. <laughs> and, and Which means uh, sinners, right? Which means sinners. <laughs> it means there's a lot of darkness in the church as well. But um, that's how God makes us holy. You know, this lesson was driven home to me, uh, Jerry, when I was a student at Harvard Divinity School uh, studying theology and some very, you might say, uh, higher echelons of thought. But on the weekends, I was a pastor of an inner city church, and I had to come back to the reality of street kids, as we call them, who were into drugs and every other kind of thing and, and crime and violence and, and divorce and real life, messy life. Mm -hmm. At the same time, my mind was being stretched. I've always thought that's the best way to study theology is to do it in stereo with the reality of the street on the one hand and your mind being stretched as high as the heavens in the other. And I think you have something of that tension in your own formation, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, I've gone through a lot of struggles. Uh, I was a stutterer all my life, and I still am a stutterer, uh, you know, sort of like an alcoholic, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Uh, I still have days when I have a hard time getting words out of my mouth, uh, <clears throat> and except for going to the world's best stuttering clinic, 
Um, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today. But that involved a lot of pain, especially in my childhood, a lot of uh, self-hatred and anger and incredible frustration. Uh, but, you know, it's out of that that, yeah, as you say, that's the stuff of life. And, and if you don't do your theology out of the pain and the stuff of life, then it's not real theology. Well, as you think about your work at Beeson just beginning, uh, we hope it'll stretch for many, many years to come, investing your life in a new generation of men and women of God who are called to serve Jesus Christ in the life of his church. Uh, wh- what would you say to those who are thinking about on the very verge of this kind of decision? A lot of people listen to the Beeson podcast. They're trying to decide, is this for me or not? Uh, what would you say to somebody who may just be approaching a decision about studying at a place like Beeson Divinity School? Well, I would say there are good places to study and bad places to study. I hope we're one of the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> and a good place to study is with people who think of theology the way we've just been discussing, as, the, as, as something that is not ivory tower, but, but, but must come out of the church, must relate to the church. And then there's, all, then there's also the enormous question today of orthodoxy. There, there are places you can study theology that are not orthodox. And, uh, you know, the church has always struggled to keep the purity of its truth and its goodness and its beauty. And that's what orthodoxy really is. And that's one reason why I am thrilled to be here, because this is an orthodox institution committed to orthodoxy, committed to the historic church, 2,000 years, and not just the last uh, number of decades or the last few centuries. So um, this, to me, is a perfect place for someone to come study theology, to come prepare for ministry, to come simply to learn, even if you're not sure what your future is. And, you know, truth be told, I had no idea when I was in my 20s where I was going to wind up. In fact, I remember the day that uh, my I graduated from the University of Chicago and I had a I did a bachelor's degree in New Testament and early Christian literature there. And so I was standing outside Rockefeller Chapel after the graduation service. And my father says, Jerry, so what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I said, Dad, I have no idea. But one thing I know for sure, I will never teach. So, you know, I tell my students, just because you're not sure where you're going, it doesn't matter. God will show you if you just take the next step. Just seek him for the next step. Take the next step. And, you know, just remember the psalmist, you know, uh, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Those those oil lamps, they held down by their feet, and all it showed them was the next step. And that's all you have to do. And if you have a hunger to learn about God and to learn about church history and to learn theology and learn about the world religions, Beeson Divinity School, there's hardly a better place. You know, I know one of your favorite figures to study, and one of mine, too, uh, is Cardinal Newman. John Henry Newman, he was was an Anglican who became a Catholic. We may not follow him across that bridge. But he wrote a great hymn that summarizes just what you've been saying. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark, and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step, enough for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what we seek. Mm -hmm. So... Welcome to Beeson, Jerry. We're delighted God has led you and Gene here, and we look forward to a ministry together that will serve him and serve his church. Thank you so much, Timothy. 
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.